What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. I think there are times we all feel caught in a rut in life and leadership. How do we get beyond the rut? That's what we're going to talk about today on episode 196 of the Lynch Leader Podcast. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the spaces and places that God has put us. Well, I hope your 2023 is running hard towards a great 2024, but maybe this one catches you at just the right time. Today, I get to sit down with Jerry Dugan. Jerry is the host of the Beyond the Rut podcast. He has a great book out, and I'm telling you, today is something we I think we all hit it. You know, we just get in that season and it doesn't really have anything to do with the dollar signs. It doesn't have anything to do with the temperature outside. It doesn't have anything to do with the size of the task in front of us. It's got everything to do with where we find ourselves. And I think Jerry's story is going to be incredibly inspiring to you because he understands Sometimes in life you go through things and you've got to make choices about how you're going to get out on the other side. Jerry is an overcomer. Jerry is a fighter. And Jerry is somebody that proves that you can get beyond the rut. You're going to love his podcast. You're going to love his book. And you are going to love our time together with Jerry today. So I don't know where you're listening from, but I want you to pull up a chair and I want you to listen in to this episode of Beyond the Rut with Jerry Dugan. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for joining me in this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. Pastor Mike, I am glad to be here. This is so cool. Well, I have enjoyed learning your story so much. So I want to I want to give you a word and I want you to tell me what this word means to you and then we'll unpack it. What does the word overcomer or overcoming mean to you? Oh man, um in, in the great words of the Mandalorian, this is the way. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's something to aspire to. It's it mm. yeah, it it's it's encouraging, you know, when things feel heavy there's the possibility to overcome whatever's in front of you. And I'm a firm believer that uh, the only way you're not going to overcome something is that you choose not to, and you choose not to reach out for help, especially if it is God's help and his power. So um, yeah, that's, that's me. (laughs) That's a a great story because your story is an overcoming story. If you go back to Jerry growing up, did you ever dream you could have overcome what you've overcome in life? When I look back, because um, yeah, once in a while, a, a good friend of mine, Steve Lawrence, he and I, he'll once in a while, he'll, he'll brave going on a hiking trail with me. 
And he's the guy who taught me that sometimes the best views are when you look back. And when he said that, we were at the top of a hill. Uh, I had some choice words for that hill. <laughs> uh, it's one of those times where I, I wish I had the faith to actually flatten that hill. Uh, but anyway, I turned around. Great view. Um, and kind of the same thing with my life. In the earlier years, you know, before my parents divorced, you know, just it was a good childhood. I got to go outside and play every day. Um, I got signed up for Cub Scouts, you know, Little League Baseball. Um, you know, I had the, the stereotypical tiger mom, though, who expected me to have perfect grades, be the top of my class, those kinds of things. But yeah, until that divorce happened, you know, life was good. Um, but then, yeah, after that, you know, if, if I were to judge my entire forecast on life on the three years that followed from 11 years old to 14, I would have, and a lot of people tell me, like, I, I don't see how you got through it. And my wife will even tell me she's been through a lot too. So for her to say to me that I went through a lot at that young age, um, it, it blows my mind. So it's not until I started to look back and realize, oh, oh, <laughs> uh, that, that should not have gone well. And, you know, my brother struggled. I had cousins who also went through a uh, divorce when their parents uh, were younger. So they were younger. And then of course their parents are the ones that divorced and they didn't cope well either. And, and so to be able to come out and, and uh, draw that line. Uh, so for those who don't know, which is probably almost everybody listening right now, like who is this guy? What was his story? Uh, so at 11 years old, um, there was this movie that came out called Top Gun. Yeah. And there was that whole like need for speed. And if you remember the bar scene, not not Top Gun Maverick for the younger folks, but the the folks, I guess, in our 30s, 40s and yeah. older, um, there was a scene at the beginning. It was this whole bet on the premises and Maverick, played by Tom Cruise, has to hook up with a girl and have relations on the premises. Well, in the Army, there are Apache helicopter pilots, and they feel kind of the same way. And that's so much as far as, like, on the premises, but they had this bet. You know, there was, like, four, maybe five guys had this bet. And I learned all this after the fact, of course, as I'm older. Um, anyway, they had this bet, and it was, could you get that lady over there to break up with her husband, to leave her husband, and and fall head over heels for you? And they all put down one one paycheck. So, you know, in the military, you got paid twice a month on the 1st and the 15th. And, and so half their paycheck was on the table that one guy at that table would go to her and convince her to leave her husband. And so one guy took up that bet, went over there and spent two to three weeks just convincing her of all her insecurities, which was your husband who's over there in Germany right now getting housing for you. He's over there cheating on you. That's what soldiers do. All men have this inclination to cheat. So all these lies that he apparently lived by is being poured out to my mom. She's the lady behind the bar. And he's working hard to convince her that she, you know, her husband is out there in Germany, not trying to get housing for us, but having the time of his life without her. And, you know, he he's going to leave her with the kids and without any alimony, all those things. So she was worried and, you know, he's her friend and they, they grow this friendship, which obviously was going to be more than a friendship for him. I don't know about it until one day my mom sits us down and says, Hey, when your dad comes back to pick you and your brother up, you both are going to go. I'm going to stay here and get my GED. I'm going to get my citizenship. Like she was already a citizen, but she was going to get all these other things in yeah. place. And, I'm thinking, oh, wow, you know, I'm, I'm going to be like 
free to be me. Like my dad's the cool parent. You know, my mom's a strict one. Um, but my brother, he's younger than me. He's like nine years old at the time. And uh, he just starts crying. And so he knows what's going on. He's actually seen the guy that's been doing all of this. Uh, I'm just thinking about freedom. Yay. And and then my dad, he does wind up coming, I think, a week later. And he's a man on the mission, on a mission. He's he's there to save his marriage. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll go to Germany, but I got I got mission number one here, um, by the way who's this guy? And, and I'm like, who, what? <laughs> and uh, it turns out my dad was very well aware of this guy because my mom had been writing him and telling him, this is what's happening. I found somebody and, um, you know, I'm, you take the kids, you take everything. I just want my freedom. And, um, it was just, yeah, within, within two weeks, we're in Germany. Uh, just my brother, myself, my dad, uh, living the bachelor life. My dad did not succeed in getting my mom to come along. Um, and we're having dinner, you know, guys dinner right there in the apartment in Germany, uh, which is going to be sandwiches. Yeah. Canned yeah. ham bread, <laughs> uh, Wonder Bread, uh, Coca-Cola for dinner. I'm like, wow, this is it. This is the life. And while we're making those sandwiches, um, I hear my brother scream, Dad, stop. And I turn to see what's going on. And my dad's holding a butcher knife to his chest. And I'm like, Dad, what are you doing? stop, put that down. And, and I'm scared. I'm like, you know, he could say, I'm not listening to you kids and plunge that thing in. And, and fortunately he didn't let the knife down, but he also didn't plunge it, which allowed my brother and I to grab the knife, take it out of his hands, put it on the counter. We gave him a big hug. He's crying. And that's when it hit us. This is how devastating this is to my dad. Like to me, it's freedom from the strict mom. Uh, for my brother, it's the loss of a mother who cared for him. Uh, for my dad, it's his whole world, and at least what he perceived as his whole world. And he went through a roller coaster. You know, one week he'd get a letter saying, "Hey, let's work together. Let's make things work uh, some way, somehow." He'd take that to mean, "Oh, she's coming back." Mm -hmm. And then the next week or the next letter, it was another clarification. No, I'm not coming back. What are you thinking? So whatever mood my mom was in and what she was going through would be reflected in these letters. And my dad, he grew up being the most socially awkward person I've ever known. In fact, he still is probably the most socially awkward person I've ever known. And um, he just didn't know how to heal himself or to get the help to heal himself. And uh, so to him, a, a whole world just fell apart. Everything he's been living has been a lie. Um, and it's so painful that this is the way out and nobody's there to help him. And uh, my brother and I, nine and 11 years old, uh, we're immediately like suicide prevention experts here. But we, I mean, no training or, you know, where no wherewithal to actually pull this off. But we do things like bring all the knives together and anything with a pointy end on it went into a bucket. And we had a roll of packaging tape and we package taped the heck out of that bucket mm -hmm. And then my brother, because I was a scaredy cat, oddly enough, uh, I wasn't going into the basement of our apartment building. But my brother took that bucket, hid it somewhere in the basement. It was supposed to go in our storage room. Um, my understanding is he put it somewhere else, and only he knew where that bucket went. And so somewhere in Germany, underneath an apartment building, was a bucket taped to the gills, like a whole ro roll of tape, filled with knives, forks, butter knives, 
chopsticks. Uh, if at a pointy end, it was in that bucket. So I, I, I just imagine sometimes the face of the person who uncovered that bucket. <laughs> wondering it's going to be an alien many years right. from now. <laughs> Put all their top weapons in this bucket. That's it. That's it. So I, that is something that should scar you, not shape you. How did you allow that crazy scenario to shape your life, life, not scar your life? What, yeah. what would you say? Oh, man. Uh, by 14 years old, I would definitely say it was a line in the sand. Uh, I, I was definitely scarred, you know. I, even now, I probably am scarred. <laughs> Just, <Yeah. laughs> um, but I had to be there for my brother. You know, he, he was nine. Chances are my brother was actually there for me more than I was there for him. Now, we're in our 40s now. He'll say the opposite through and through. And I'm like, man, he carried me. You know, when I was falling apart and no idea what to do, he'd be the guy with the idea. I'm like, yes, let's go do that. So in my brother's eyes, I led him through this. And I'm like, no, I just took your idea. And that was better than my idea, which was yeah. an absence of ideas. And I said, yes, let's do that. Um, so everything we came up with was in some way, shape or form, something my brother had come up with. Uh, but I guess that gave him the confidence he needed to carry through. Um, we got to stay in foster care. So we got to see life from another side of the coin. You know, uh, we saw a family that had a healthy dynamic. They prayed together at, before mealtimes. They had something called timeout, and the kids would voluntarily put themselves in timeout when they knew they did something that the parents did not approve of. Alien to my brother and I, we're like, nope, we deny until we get spanked. And then finally, when we're done taking the spanking, we will admit to it, which yeah. led to more spankings, but not as much more as if we just held out on the truth. That's what we knew. <laughs> so uh, to hear them talk through their issues, talk through their conflict, same age as my brother and I was was foreign to us. But that that left an impression on me. Mm. When we got back to the States, so after my dad got the help he needed, he he was um, his his boss eventually saw a, a wound on him that was self-inflicted, got him the professional care needed. Uh, so we spent like a month, month and a half in Germany getting psychiatric care and then another month or so in the U.S. And then we got reunited with um, my extended family on the West Coast of uh, the U.S., so California. And that's where a couple of more uncles were also going through divorce. So the cousins of mine, you know, hurt people, hurt people. So yeah. getting bullied by one of the uncles, getting bullied by one of the cousins, um, everybody else chooses a side. You either yeah. bully with or you get bullied. And I'm I'm the guy who just defiantly just kept drawing the line in the sand. And, um, you know, while the uncle was calling me all these racial slurs, I'm the one who would correct him that actually, you know, a chick is from China. I'm from Thailand and I'm not even from Thailand. I'm from Oklahoma. Uh, that's in the United States in case you didn't know that. And I'm like at 12 years old telling a 30 something year old man, all these things. Of course he doesn't like it. So he'd yeah. push me around and uh, that the cousin would also push me around cause I was little compared to him. And, but it, it made me more defiant. But by age 14, I just drew a line in the sand. Yeah. You know, I, I was like, I know I'm not going to commit suicide. That's a permanent solution to something that's temporary. And I'm glad my dad didn't succeed in that. And I wouldn't want to go through that. Like, you know, because my dad almost succeeded. And when he came to, <laughs> uh, he shared with us the instant regret he had the moment he was blacking out, that he wished he had not gone that far. And, and he was fortunate he didn't lose his life over it. 
Mm. And so I knew there's regret if you go down that path. That there, there are a lot of people that have said similar things when they had their near-death experience committing suicide. So I, I knew at 14 that's not an option for me. I also remembered the O'Neill family out of Germany, the Foster mm. family that took us in. And I also just paid attention to my friends in middle school and even going into high school. And they had healthy family dynamics that just blew my mind. You know, friends that wanted to do, to go to grandma and grandpa's house. I didn't want to go because that's where I got beat up. They wanted to go because that's where they got toys. They got to go on these cool trips. And I, I just started to kind of break that down and say, ah, that's possible not just because they were born into it, but that's possible because their parents chose that and they committed to that. How do you pull that off? And then I also looked around the other aunts and uncles in my family, and there were at least two aunts that had very healthy relationships. And I just started to pay attention to like, what do they do? How do they interact with their spouse? How does their, you know, their husband interact with them and treat them with respect and you know, honor their dignity and all these things? I'm like, I have a choice. I could be like this wallowing hopeless family, or it could be like these little pockets of happiness that, that I'm seeing around me. And at 14 years old, I just, I wrote down a vision for my family. I, I put it down like on Christmas cards because Christmas was coming and uh, I don't know why, but that was my way to share it. And I just shared with everybody. I want to be the first to go to college, graduate from college. I want to be able to walk into a store, not be followed by security. I want our name to be something people see hope in and mm. they can trust us and that in turn, that inspires the rest of us to also do what we're capable of doing. And I sent that out to almost every extended family member I could and gave it to my dad and um, and even my mom. And, and half the family loved it. They're like, oh, this is awesome. Please go for this. And the other half was like, who do you think you are telling us yeah. you're better than us? And it didn't matter what they responded with. This was just my declaration. I'm going for it. And uh, so that was at about 14 years old. Graduated high school at 18, of course, go off to college, and I barely graduate. I'm like, ah, yay. But I would say, um, you know, from a worldly view, choosing to have a better life, choosing yeah. to change the direction that I was going in. Uh, of course, when I look back, you know, my dad was um, not my dad. God. So that father yeah. <laughs> clearly was present. Um, of course, I don't realize this until if we fast forward to I'm about 30 years old, uh, been a Christian for a whopping three years, maybe four years. I didn't receive Jesus until I was 27, 28. Really? Yes. Wow. A lot of people look at me, they're like, oh, he grew up in this. It's like, our grandparents would drag me to church every other weekend, you know, but yeah, I didn't receive Jesus until I was about 20. Yeah, I got out of the army at 27 and I was definitely 28 by the time I received Jesus. And yeah, I was involved in ministry by age 30. So, so what was the impetus? What was the what was the draw for you at that age to go? Because it had been one thing to meet Jesus at 14 when you were at the bottom of the barrel, right? But yeah. you've you've overcome some, you've achieved some. What was the what was the push towards that relationship with Christ at that age? Yeah, I blame my wife, um <laughs> partially. Uh turns out so while I'm in the army, I'm in my last maybe um six months of enlistment. And this is in 2003. I'm with third infantry division. We get sent to a place called Kuwait. And right before I'm about to be sent home, I get stop lost. And, um, I remember the, the day the war broke out, uh, two things were happening. 
uh, I was in Kuwait on the border. We're getting ready to launch our assault. And I'm going through all my checklists of what do I need to do to prepare to go to war? Uh, I'm a sergeant. I'm a medical um, specialist. I, I'm in charge of a team of five people. We're going to be spread out hundreds of miles. Are they okay? Do they have what they need? Do I do everything to prepare them? Great. Uh, people are handing off those letters in case I die. And yep. I'm like, well, I didn't write one of those. So I'm starting to write that. And I realize, wait, I can't, as the medic and the morale guy, I can't hand that off to anybody that says, hey, in case I buy it, which statistically... <laughs> The medic is going to die. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got more posthumously awarded medals than anybody else in the army historically. Uh, I'm the short timer on top of that. I've seen the movies. I'm gone. Yeah. I'm a goner. And uh, so I can't go handing that letter around because then people are going to be like, what? Doc thinks he's going to die. What the heck? What, what are we doing? And and I couldn't do that. So I wrote this letter to with the intent, I'm sending this home. And I'm like, but I can't freak out my wife. She's pregnant with our, our second child. Um, you know, this isn't something to throw on her either. So I had to write that letter in such a way that my wife, my son, and my unborn daughter would know dad loves them no matter what. And, and so I wrote that. I sent that off. And I'm, I'm still preparing. And I'm like, I think I got everything. And I just happened to look up and there's a, a chaplain, our chaplain, uh, Captain, oh, what was his name? The guy was hilarious, but he's praying with somebody and I see them do the the Catholic cross thing on themselves. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm not Christian, but if I'm covering all the bases, let, let's, yeah, let's just in case it. And so I, I said, God, if you're real, when I die, uh, you'll replace me with somebody who will love my wife better than I did and raise my kids as if they were his own in the way that they need to go. And that's all I got for you. So that was the first thing that happened on the, the when the war kicked off. Unbeknownst to me, and I find this out when I get home, uh, my wife is in Texas uh, with her family. She's watching the news and she prays, God, if you bring my husband home in one piece, I promise you I'll bring him to church and I'll raise my family mm -hmm. in church. Um, mm -hmm. And so please bring him home to me. And um, so, you know, the war kicks off. I go a couple of times. I almost got my head shot off, but I heard somebody called doc turn around and turns out bullets were kicking up where I would have been if I wasn't distracted. Uh, I didn't realize the significance of that until later. I just thought it was stress. Uh, but the night I got home, uh, we had the ceremony and everything. We go off with our families and Olivia is driving us home and she says, Hey, Jerry, I got something I need to share with you. Do you promise you won't get mad? And of course, it it immediately brings me back to the, the briefing we got from the chaplain before we got on the plane to come back. And he said, hey, guys, how many of you are married? We raised our hands. Great. How many of you are expecting to see all that tax-free money in your savings account waiting for you to spend it when you get home? And th the guys who've deployed before, they put their hands down. I wasn't one of those guys. I had my hand up. Yeah. And chaplain laughed at us. He said, put your hands down. <laughs> he said, all that money, guys, if you're married, especially if you're younger, there's going to be zero money zero dollars in that savings account, unless your wife's a CPA, uh, it's gone. And it went to either new furniture or Jody. Jody is the nickname for the side boyfriend. Yeah. And he said, if it's new furniture, you hug your wife, you kiss her, you thank her for the new furniture and you both enjoy it. Um, and if you have another child, name them after me. My first name is John. And we're like, what? <laughs> he said, now if all that money's gone and it turns out she had a Jody on the side while you were deployed, Get out of the house, call your nearest battle buddy. They'll come pick you up. Call me as soon as you can. This is my mm -hmm. personal phone number. Uh, we'll answer it. 
we'll, we'll take you in. We'll get you the help you need. Um, don't take it out on your family. Just get out of there and stay calm. And we're like, oh, man. So here's my wife in the car. We're driving home. She says, I got something I need to tell you. Do you promise not to be mad? And I'm sitting here saying, apparently out loud, I'm like, please let it be furniture. Please let it be furniture. She's like, I'm sorry, what? I said, hey, did we get new furniture? And she was like, surprised. She said, yeah. How did you know? I didn't think you could see the the debit card expenses. I'm like, I, I couldn't, but it was just a hunch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we got new furniture and, and I got you a computer. I hope you liked it. I like it. I'm like, yeah. Um, so that was it. She said, no. I'm like, oh man, we got a boyfriend too. <laughs> like that was my thought. I didn't say it out loud, but that was my next thought. And and so I was like, well, preparing for the worst. I asked her, well, what, what was it? And she said, so while you were gone, I know you're not very religious, uh, but you know, deep down I am. I said, yes. No, she's not doing the hand gestures because she's yeah. the one trying. Um, and I said, yeah. She said, well, I hope you're not mad, but I prayed for you while you were deployed. And every day I kept asking God, if he'd bring you home in one piece, um, I would make sure our family went to church and that we raised our kids in the church. And that was a big, bold ask of me. Um, and, and that's kind of where I am. So for me and my faith, Jerry, we kind of have to go to church, but I don't know what you feel about that. And she's waiting now, like, pin has dropped. How is Jerry going to respond? And, and I just remember like, cause I wasn't religious. I wasn't, you know, following Jesus at the time, other than it turns out I made a deal too. uh, <laughs> learned that later. Um, but then I, I just realized part of my commitment when I was 14 was I wanted to live up to the family. It turns out the family crest for the Dugan family, uh, has a motto to it, uh, virtute et valore, uh, by virtue and valor. Mm. And um, that was something I was aspiring to with my life, that I'm going to live it with that virtue and valor. I'm going to do what's right, even when people don't want to live up to that, or most people wouldn't. And I want to do it bravely. And here's that moment. It's like, okay, I don't believe in this Jesus guy, uh, but my wife clearly does. And the virtuous thing as the husband is to support her in her faith and don't put her in a position where she has to lie to her God. That was kind of the thought in my mind. And so I just simply said something like, well, I can't put you in a position where you're going to be a liar. And she was just surprised, ecstatic. Wow. Even. And she smiled. And uh, we shopped around churches in the Fort Benning area at the time. Um, didn't pick one, but I was like, hey, you know, there's a guy in my section who goes to a contemporary church. We haven't tried it out. I can ask him where he goes. And she's like, yeah, cool. So the next work day, I go to work and I'm like, hey, Morales, um, He's like, yeah, I'm like, what church do you guys go to? And the guy gives me a big hug. Like, oh, wow, I knew you'd come around. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa what's going on? <laughs> My wife's asking, not me. And he goes, oh, okay, that figures. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man. Uh, but he also shared that, you know, he had hoped, and uh, that was his way of toning down. He'd been praying for everybody in the section. Uh, but he told me what church he went to, uh, goes to. And I told my wife, we went, checked it out, and our kids loved it. We loved it. It was very bright, upbeat. And that was my introduction to a church that was very different than anything I've ever been exposed to. You know, it turns out one of my biggest detractors from being part of a church was, you know, all the, all the hypocrites. It's like, I can't be a hypocrite. And it was like, oh no, we're all broken people coming together. (laughs) We're supposed to be filled with hypocrites. Uh, What do we do about it? Um, But that was our first first dose of it. I get out of the army and it's like maybe two years later. So, wow. Uh, that I finally received Jesus. And, and so we're, 
going to a new church in Corpus Christi. We're going every Sunday. Uh, we picked the one church where our daughter isn't crying so badly that we've got to go pick her up out of the children's area. And my wife realizes every time Emma's number comes up on that screen, Jerry volunteers to go and he misses out on this great sermon. And so she volunteered that she'll go back if Emma gets called out. So been a while, Emma's crying. Liv goes to check on Emma. We're doing the salvation prayer at the end. The pastor, I'm in the back and I'm thinking, you know, pastor going into salvation prayer and I'm just thinking to myself, you know, I'm still dipping my toe in this thing. So I'm not, I'm not ready to jump into this. And the pastor pauses mid prayer. And he says, and God's just put it on my heart right now to say to you, I don't know who needs to hear this, but he wants me to say to you, stop dipping your toe in the water. Hello. You know exactly what you're getting into. It's now go all in. You won't regret it. And I, and I was already thinking this guy eavesdrops on us at home somehow. Yeah. He just happens to speak to my heart all the time, every Sunday. But when he said that verbatim after it had just gone through my Golly. own mind, I'm like, there's something on my head. I'm like, I'm doing a quick inspection. Like, how does this guy know? I didn't understand the Holy Spirit yet. Uh, and I just shrugged my shoulders. I'm like, all right, well, apparently I'm not supposed to dip my toes anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's when... And, you know, 29, almost, uh, yeah, about 28, 29 years old, somewhere in that ballpark is when I just said, all right, well, I'm going to go all in. Let's see what this is about. And I just felt like this relief, like Mm. uh, whatever weight was on me, it's gone. I have no idea what that was going to mean. What was ahead of me? None of that. And all of a sudden it's just like, boom. And, and, and my wife missed it. She comes back with Emma after the church service. She's like, how was it? And I told her, uh, I, I received Jesus and she just, so happy. <laughs> and uh, so that was, gosh, I'm 47 now. So what, 18 ish yeah. years ago? Wow. I'm getting what, old. Did, what did that change? What fundamentally that happening in your journey, what fundamentally because of faith changed about you and yeah. your story? And, and I love what you said at 14. I'm writing a new story. I want to write a new future. How did faith come into play in writing who you are today, Jerry? Yeah. Um, it was just as gradual as my coming to receive Jesus as my savior. <laughs> like That took two years. <laughs> I love it. Uh, the one commitment I had that I could fully go all in on that I was comfortable with, even at two, in 2005, when I finally received Jesus was, I want to be the best husband I can for my wife. You know, she and I experienced well over five divorces growing up. Uh, and so we knew statistically that doesn't bode well for us. We want to overcome that, uh, that problem. Uh, the other thing was I, I, mean, I was dealing with combat stress, you know, not wanting to admit it was PTSD, but, yep. um, you know, it, it would show its, its head here and there with my temper and, and, uh, not being patient with toddlers. And my wife would always have to remind me, Hey, she's two, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's that's right. Four. You know, you, you're, you're coming at this like a 30 something year old, or you're coming at this like a 29 year old, uh, with all these experiences in education, they just learn their colors. I'm like, that's, that's a powerful point. And so I was being driven by this desire to be a better parent. So those were the two things that were driving me, be a better husband, be a better parent. And so that would get me to connect with men's groups within the church, uh, we were already involved with a couple small group in our church. And so I was seeing that. And then um, 
just over time, you know, learning about like God's vision for marriage and here's a way to have a healthy marriage. And then I'm starting to see the parallel between what I was being taught at like a family life uh, weekend to remember retreat and thinking about the O'Neill family in Germany. I'm starting to see these connections here. Oh, that's how they did this. And so the more I learned and the more I applied, the more I realized God kind of knew what he was doing. And yeah. at the same time, I'm starting to see these parallels and these connections all throughout my life. And um, so at some point, I'm at a church paintball event. And uh, one of the guys I served in the video ministry with, uh, Brandon, you know, hands me a polo shirt. He's like, hey, yeah, we're starting a men's ministry. Here's a polo shirt. I'm like, oh, man, thanks. I'd like you to be part of the core group. I'm like, what's a core group? He goes, Come to the meeting. We'll tell you all about it. Uh, so I've probably been a Christian for about three, maybe four years at that point. And I go from guy playing paintball, having a time of a great time to I'm now a group of like 12 men who are leading the men's ministry in our church. And I'm now leading a Monday morning men's group. We're doing Bible study. Uh, and, then you know, as if it couldn't be any more nerve wracking, my pastor's dad was there because he had it on his heart to be at all the new men's groups. Um until it got up and running. The fact that he stayed in my group for four years <laughs> made me nervous. <laughs> what am I doing wrong? He goes, no, I, I also need a home group. And this is the one I come to. I'm like, are you bad. sure? He goes, yeah, I, I'm also going to that one, that one, and that one. And if you don't believe me, you can ask the leaders. I'm like, I know the leaders. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was probably around 2008 ish, maybe 2009. Uh, I don't know how we got on the topic, but we start talking about, uh, I think it was Romans chapter 12, being a new creation, renewing your mind every single day. Uh, That was the topic on the table. And some of us just couldn't wrap our head around the idea of dying to self and being a new, a new creation in Christ. And I'm, this is all above my head. So I'm just nodding and letting the conversation happen. And I'm, you know, part of the crutch of having the pastor's dad in the table at the table is I can lean on him for the theology stuff. Yeah. he knows who to go to for like the, the fact checking and stuff. Uh, and so he, he mentions that, you know, it's not a physical death. It's you're letting go of who you used to be to embrace who God has always wanted you to become. And when he said that, I heard this voice in my head that said, um, you will be a husband who loves his wife better than you did and raise your children as if they were his own into the way they needed to grow. And I'm like, wait, that's my voice. And I realized, holy crud, that was my God, if you're real statement back in 2003. And I'm like, and I just started bawling my eyes right there at the table. Like this is all internally in my head, uh, in my heart. And I just start crying out loud and and blubbering like an idiot. Uh, And then somebody asked me a question. I want to tell them like, oh, you won't believe what I just realized. But all that comes out is... You know, like just like more tears, not, I think came out of my nose. I almost went into my coffee that morning. Um, they went ahead and like wrapped up, closed in prayer. I was still bawling my eyes out. Everybody left pastor's dad states, uh, Bill senior. And he just asked what happened. I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know if I could tell you without crying again. He goes, I'm retired. I got all day. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when I finally called down, calmed down, I told him everything that happened. He said, you got to share that with the group next week. You're, you're the leader. They got to see vulnerability in you. And I was like, but Bill, what if I ball my eyes out again? He said, I know your story now. I can take over if that happens. So the following week I shared it and they were just blown away by it. And, and they were just like, Jerry, when we're talking about 
dying to self and becoming a new creation. That that process started in 2003. Uh, apparently, it was your fault, Jerry. <laughs> you asked for it. I'm like, yeah, I did not know that at the time, but uh, I don't regret it. So, uh, gosh, that, that's still I eye opening and awe inspiring for me every time I think about that. That you know, God took something I said just sort of like just in case, and said, all right. Hold, you know, I don't think God said hold my beer, but yeah, you know, being from Texas, that's yep. he, he had a hat on too, I'm sure. <laughs> that's, that's exactly you know, it's so funny because it, we say this all the time on this call we live life forward, we understand it backwards. God never wastes our time, He never wastes our experiences. And now you, you've got a brand your podcast is called Beyond the Rut, you've got a, a, a book out called Beyond the Rut. What, what did you see in people's lives? that made you go, I got a word to speak into that. I see too many people living in this ditch and, and not just being in it for a moment, being in it for years. What drove you to speak into that? Yes. Um, again, it it started much closer to home. It was the idea of, okay, my, my son, you know, my first podcast started in 2014, and I knew like there were all these lessons I was learning I wanted to pass on to my son, but he was like 12 at the time. It's like, you can't burden a 12 year old with like how to be humble and, yeah. <laughs> how to, you know, you know, honor your wife and honor your children and, and all these things. Like he's not going to want to know all these things, but I want to impart these things. And chances are, he's not going to want to listen until I'm way too old to even care or spend the time. I need a way to record these. And uh, so the, the first podcast, Family Time Q&A, was I was listening to some other Christian family shows. Uh, mo- they mostly delved into healthy marriage. And then every so often they bring their kids onto the show and, and they try to showcase, you know, what good parents we are because we lead with this, this and this. But I could tell they were prodding their kids to say certain things. And the kids really didn't have the language. They didn't have the understanding to really talk on the depth that they wanted to talk about. I thought that sounds so fake. That that does mean no good as a parent striving to be a better dad. I was like, yeah, what I need is to hear the reality hitting the theology. Like, what's that clash like? Um, what are the things that dad is struggling with who hasn't been a believer his whole life? Um, you know, what about the questions that, you know, plague me? Or like, what are the, what does a dialogue look like between father and son that's healthy? Uh, I want, I want, I want a guy out there who's dumb enough to just open up the mic, let his son ask him anything. And what comes out of his mouth is the answer. Like you don't get to come back and and tailor it or edit it or change the question or it's got to be open hearted. Your son has a question. Dad, you got the answer. What's your answer? And I'm like, yeah, I need a show like that. And I just felt God put on my heart. Jerry, you're going to be the guy dumb enough to do that. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, yes, I am. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I rushed home. Uh, that started family time Q and a, we ran that for 86 episodes. My wife and I were just listening to it the other day because our kids were so little. My daughter was 10. My son was 12. Uh, so it's a time capsule for us. But now my, my son is in his twenties. His girlfriend listens to the show and she's like, wow, it, it's so eye opening to see where you were over a decade ago. And I'm like, yeah. What did I say? <laughs> like, so we're yeah. going back. What did I put out there? Is it still, is it sound? Was it good? Uh, what was I learning? Um, so from that, my friend, Brandon from the men's ministry, he's now uh, an associate pastor at an, another church reaches out to me and says, Hey, I want to start a podcast. I know you have one. 
Can you talk me through it? So we meet for lunch. He invited a third guy, another guy from our men's ministry, Sean. And it turns out he's assembling a team to start a show. And it's going to be the three of us. Uh, Our focus is helping men who are Christian between 35 and 45. Um, They're married. They've got kids. They've got a good career going. You know, six-figure income, the, the house, the picket fence, the dog, the two cars, kids in soccer, that kind of thing. But deep down inside, they feel stuck because they're not living with God first. They're struggling to. They don't know how. They don't know what that means. They're following all these checklists of what life should look like, but they're ignoring the part where God's tugging on their heartstrings. Mm. So we want to capture that. Like, what does it look like to be a man who's living for God first, um, followed by his family, and then everything else falling into place? And the thing we were running into in men's ministry, the thing I'd seen uh, the men in my family struggle with who went through divorce was that they were so bent on achieving success in their career or in their business or in finances that they ignored the family relationship. They just figured my wife's got it. My kids, they'll be fine. Um, they'll, they'll appreciate what I've done for them when they get older. And, and we would see that mentality and that rationale be embraced time and again. And then it was costing them the very things they were trying to protect and boost up their marriages, their relationship with their kids. And so we wanted to capture those answers to those questions and stories of other people who struggled the same way who overcame that. So that's when we started to shift towards the, the interview format. Um, we didn't want like, authors and you know celebrities on the show like we decided we wanted real people we want that guy that works at that building down the street you always wondered what was it like to be a boss in that building well here's a guy he's a manager of that that branch and this is what he struggled with in his career this is something he struggled with in his life uh and it's just real and if we ever did get somebody who was somewhat celebrity status we didn't care about their product or their book or their movie. We, we wanted to know like, when did you feel stuck in your life? And then what did you do to get out of that? Why is that? And so that's so important to you. Like, how do you relate to the guy who has to work a nine to five Monday through Friday, who's married with kids and to see them come forward and share those stories uh, over the years, just been a help for our audience, but also for me, like it turns out it's, it's helped me grow. And it's things come up in these podcast interviews. I'm like, and I keep saying I value this, but am I really living up to it? Oh, I'm not. Um, oh, my wife just heard that episode too, and she's calling me out on it. You know, it's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it was making me a better person at home as well as at work uh, by doing the show. And that that's what started. It was like three of us coming together with the same calling on our heart. And I knew that with podcasting, it's evergreen. You can listen yeah. to it on the commute to work. You can listen to it while you're doing the yard. Um, yeah, it's just, and the next generation can listen to it too. What's a, what's an emotion for somebody that's going through a rut season? What are emotions that are on their dashboard that yeah. you would go, this is telling you something's not right. They're, these are your dashboard lights. What are some of those emotions you've seen in guys and some of the leaders you've coached and work with that shows them you're, you, you are off the road in a rut. What would you tell yeah. them? Um, so some of the things they'll recognize uh, in the morning, you know, do you pop up out of bed saying, yes, I'm going on my walk. I'm going to spend time building up on me, You're like pouring into myself, connecting with God. 
and I get to go to work. Mm. You know, you know, if everything's clicking into place and when I get out of work, I'm going to take my wife out for dinner or I'm going to take my kids out. or I'm going to be at the baseball game or at the school event. If you're looking at the day with anticipation and excitement, you're not in a rut. <laughs> That's good. That's good. So, on the opposite end of that, if you wake up and, and maybe you're excited about your morning run, your, your personal routine, but now it's time to get ready for work. And that was my case just a couple of years ago. And when it's time to get ready for work, you're like, oh, maybe my boss will be late today. So maybe I could be late today. Is my boss going to be late today? What 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 has he emailed lately? Mm-hmm. Or you know, maybe maybe there's something going on at work and, and I don't have to go in right away. Uh, how's my team doing? And, and so I'm looking for excuses. And I only live three blocks away from work. So <laughs> here I am looking for excuses to not go in right on time or early even. Um, so that was a sign. And it was work I loved doing. It was work yep. I was really good at doing. But for some reason, I didn't want to go. And so with that, there was some frustration but there was also this sense of like hopelessness. Like yeah. it doesn't matter what I do there. It's not going to amount to anything. And um, not only is that a sign that you're in a rut, it, it could be a sign that there's something else going on too. So that's uh, definitely where you want to pause and and think about what's happening, reflect on what's happening, pray about it. Uh, you know, for me, fortunately it was, Oh yeah, my work environment does suck. Uh, yeah. What do I want to do about it? And um it turns out my wife also was frustrated. And she said, Jerry, I want my husband back. So quit your job. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, you're, you're missed, like, don't quit until you get a new job. So go yeah. get a new job. And you're telling me quit ASAP. And she said, yeah, I've, I've watched you for a year. Leave for work, not joyful. Mm-hmm. And come back from work very frustrated. And you've been like that for a year. And our kids who live on their own, they come to visit us. Both of them at the end of their visit shared with me uh, a concern. And I was like, what was the concern? They they asked if you and I were okay. Mm. And I was like, we are, right? She said, yeah, we're fine. (laughs) I would explain to them how things are going on at work and I was taking a toll on you. And they didn't believe me. And I'm like, what? They thought you were a liar. And they said, yeah, both kids offered up the spare room to me that, well, my son had a spare room. My daughter uh, was willing to sneak my wife into the dorm and share a dorm room with her. Like that's how seriously they thought we were on the outs. And I was like, Oh man, if they're thinking that and they're close to us, but they're seeing it from the outside, that's, that's serious. And if you also see it every single day and you're worried, you're going to lose me. That's an easy decision. That next day I wrote that resign. I wrote the resignation letter actually that moment but I didn't send it until after I talked to HR the next day. <laughs> so, uh, but there's so many people, though, I know who will suck it up, drive on. Yep. They can provide for their family. Uh, so the man's job is to go to work, earn the bacon, even if it's taking this kind of toll on them. And I, I decided differently. I'm like, I'm not going to let my boss be more important than my wife. I'm not going to let a job, a job title, a salary be more important than my wife. And, uh, none, nothing's more important than God. Mm. So there, there was a hierarchy of what was important to me, uh, a priority. And that's where the five F's, uh, come into play. First and foremost is my faith, uh, that, that my connection with God has got to be strong. It's got to be solid. And if not, go get it there. Yep. Um, followed by family. Uh, my wife and I are the closest thing, second only to my connection with God. Um, and my wife will kick me out of the room, but she's still doing devotional time. I'm like, all right, cool. I'll be back. Yeah. 
why does the cat get to bother you? That's not fair. She's like, oh, I'm kicking him out too. I'm like, no, you're not. Uh, but anyway, uh, and then connecting with our kids because we want connection with our grandkids and great grandkids. So that's a big, we're thinking that far ahead. Um, and then fitness. How am I taking care of myself physically, emotionally, mentally? Uh, it turns out with my previous job, it took a toll on me physically, emotionally, and, and mentally. Uh, and so that was a, another thing that gave me that aha. Like I gained something like 40 pounds in a year. Um, you know, I wasn't sleeping more than four hours a night. And, and those are things that were like, huh. But the moment I left my job, sleeping seven, eight hours a night. Wow. Or at least in bed for seven or eight hours. I think I still sleep about six, uh, but way better than three to four hours. Um, and I've been on the the losing end of some weight here. So I think I'm like 15 pounds down for the last three months. And once I realized, I was yep. like, oh, it, it, I can't breathe when I tie my shoes. Um, so then after that, finally finances. So uh, faith, family, fitness, finances, just to, you know, because we do pursue money. We, you know, got to have money to give money. Um you got to, if you want to invest in yourself, you got to have money to pour into books, coaching, and tuition, those kinds of things. Um, investments for retirement, um, all those things. It does take money, but it's not above my personal well-being, not above my wife, not above God. And then growing always for future possibilities. So those are the five Fs in that priority. Um, and... Yeah, just taking the time to reflect, like, how are things going in those buckets? Uh, helps me make all the big decisions in my life. And I've been doing that for the last almost decade. So, you know, and I know in the book, you talk about the power of writing things down. Yes. Putting it on paper. And, you know, you even go back to what you did at 14. You you created a Jerry Maguire manifesto and didn't even know what you were doing, right? Not yeah. that I've seen the movie. I've just heard about it. But you created a, you created a manifesto and lived and lived up to it. What is the power for somebody who's in a rut, bringing it to light and going, I am not going to stay here. I am going to do this. What's the power in writing things down? Yes. Uh, so, you know, God who created everything also gave us the ability to create things. And when you write something down, you take an idea that is nebulous. It has no form. And the moment you write it down or you record it in some way, shape, or form, you've now created something tangible. So for me, writing on those Christmas cards, uh, and I'm still waiting for my cousin Susie to, to send me a photo of, she said she held onto the card, but it's white boxes. Um, and it helped her like get out of her rut and get a CNA license like a decade and a half ago. Um, so yeah, writing it down creates something tangible. Like you can see it. I, I can touch the paper that it's written on or the journal. Um, I could feel the grooves on the paper that come from the pen as I wrote. And I didn't have that before I wrote it down. Uh, and so you've truly taken an idea and created something tangible just by simply writing it down. Mm. So whether you're writing down the things you're struggling with or you're, you're writing down the things you hope for, for a better tomorrow, all those become creations the moment you do that. And, mm. and, once it's real, you can look at it and say, oh, I don't want that anymore, though. I want this. And write that down. And it's like, great. Now, how do I get there? And, that's right. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's why I'm a big fan of journaling, writing things down. Um, I got a dry erase board, and I'm just, like, throwing ideas up there over and over and over again. And my wife's like, why do you do that? You, you just, like, write the same thing every time you're up there. I'm like, but I'm making it real, and it becomes more real every time I do it. Um, you know, this book's fantastic, and we'll have a link in the show notes. 
because I think everybody, gosh, I've been in my business for, been at my church for 30, 27 years, almost and in 32 years in the, what I do. And I think we all go through ruts. I think we get off the road and then we get back on, we get off the road and we get back on. It's part of life. When somebody hears the name, Jerry Dugan, your, your, your name didn't have the big best connotation maybe when you were 14, but you made a choice and you made a choice of how you wanted your life to go. If I were to call one of your children or your wife or a close friend of yours, and I was to say, what knowing Jerry, how would you describe him? What would you want them to tell me? Oh, man. Um, well, I'd hope they tell you <laughs> is that uh, I'm somebody who always strives to be better than I was the day before. And I also hope the same for anybody around me. And uh, so I hope that's what they say. And uh, who knows? I think my daughter would say I'm a bit extra. She'd, she'd be open about that. Say, <laughs> a bit extra. He's, he's always on the move. <laughs> you know, when I get off that call with Jerry, I think – it makes me look at my life and go, why do I whine about so much? Why, when I go through a tough time, do I feel like it's all about me? And then you hear Jerry's story and you're like, good night. What that guy overcame and is still overcoming to be who he was created to be is so inspiring. I'm better. I'll tell you this. I'm better for my time with Jerry. I hope you are too. Man, thanks so much for joining us today. If this episode added value to your life, if this episode was something that you go, man, that is worthwhile for my life and my leadership, two things. Number one, subscribe. That is the easiest way to stay on top, whether it's YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen from, by far and away the easiest and it's so easy then to share that episode with a friend secondly man if you can leave a rating or review it always helps others find their way to us well thanks again for joining us today we've got one more great episode in 2023 that's going to be coming out i can't wait for you to spend some more time with us as we get to sit down with a great friend of mine who you are going to feel his energy come out of wherever you're listening from or watching from. His name is Dale Alexander, and he's going to be talking about the talk, and you are going to love Dale. Oh, it is so good. Well, thanks again for listening today. Now, go live out your faith in the spaces and places that God put you, and let's love, love God, let's love people, and let's live sent. Have a great one, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.